Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We spent a lot of time on this show talking about the crisis, if that's the right word, in Silicon Valley, the way in which Silicon Valley is compounding inequalities, and particularly the way in which Silicon Valley seems to replicate the racial and sexual injustices, the gendered injustices in America more broadly. Um, Denise Young-Smith is one of Silicon Valley's most experienced and senior executives for, I don't know whether it was 14 or 20 years. She ran diversity and human talent at Apple, perhaps uh, Silicon Valley's most illustrious company. She no longer is at Apple, but she is nonetheless still very focused on thinking or rethinking uh, what Silicon Valley can do to help fix America. Uh, Denise, you spent a lot of time as a very senior executive in Silicon Valley. More and more criticism of Silicon Valley. Uh, Last week, uh, 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 Tim uh, Cook, who I know you reported to, was in Washington, D.C. with Jeff Bezos and a number of other senior people answering to congressional committees about the role of Silicon Valley in tech in, 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 in the economy. Uh, what is your take on Silicon Valley's responsibility towards racism and sexism in the workplace? Well, that's a, um, thank you, Andrew, first of all, for having me uh, on your program. And um, what you just asked is, you know, the conversation of the ages, first of all, because uh, technology, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman who made the statement that every company is basically a technology company, but technology in and of itself has a responsibility to the world. That it, was, uh, by the way, sorry to interrupt, that was Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn and now a, a uh, board member at Microsoft and uh, actually very close to, to Barack Obama and the Democratic Party as a founder. I'm familiar with him. So, you know, technology is one of the leading forces um, in terms of being, you know, it's an industry, it's a philosophy, it's an ideology, it is a force um, in our world today. And it encompasses pretty much everything that we do as a society today. So for it to not possess kind of a core consciousness and awareness of its role in this world and of its role uh, in, in enforcing some of these systems um, and embedding some of these systems in our foreseeable future, you know, through code, through algorithms, through intelligence, artificial intelligence, et cetera, for it to not see that is, is, is tragic. Um, and I just believe, uh, fortunately, I believe that most of the large companies are very much aware of this uh, in varying degrees. 
Uh, some of them are just finding out about it. Some of them have a really good intrinsic knowledge of it. I believe that, unfortunately, many of them don't know quite what to do or how to go about it. And I think that's going to be something that we all have to figure out together. Um, but we can't afford for technology not to understand what is happening in the world and not to understand their role in it. Denise, I don't want to pick on Apple because I actually think Apple is one of the better Silicon Valley companies, but I'm Absolutely. holding up my, my iPhone now, and if you can see it, and it has perhaps an appropriately white case. Are you suggesting that products like the iPhone, uh, do they come with a, a, a racial or a gendered identity, given the fact that they tend to be designed by white men? If representation is not in the room, when anything is designed, conceptualized, then it is going to be over-indexed in features that are unique to the mindset of the designers, period. So representation has to be present uh, in any place along the continuum of creation and design. It simply has to be. And that is the big kind of conundrum that technology um, and everything else, but primarily technology, because that's what we're talking about today, that's what has to be solved, is at what point along the continuum does representation fit into? At what point is it, it, it should be a play, it should be a matter of it just being a foregone conclusion. That's where we have to get to. And we're so, so far from that. So it is not just Apple. I think Apple has a, a, a very solid awareness of it. It is not just, it is, you can take any of those uh, companies singularly. Um, it, and it is not just them. It is the collective. It's technology in and of itself and how it's created, how it's designed, how it's in, in, envisioned. Um, you know, who and what is in the room when those things are happening. That's, you know, it's just that simple. And your business, of course, at Apple was determining who indeed was in that room. You were head of diversity and talent. So you were in part responsible for figuring out who Apple hired. Is the problem, and of course, one of the still most appalling things about Silicon Valley is the underrepresentation. Uh, of women and, and of uh, black and, and, and other minorities within these companies. Why are they so underrepresented? Are, are, are the senior people in these companies, are they racists or they just think in a white male way? <laughs> uh, I think you kind of answered your own question by the way that you asked it. Um, but when a particular perspective or presence representation has been systemically omitted within that system, then the system is going to create very much like itself. And so anything that, um, you know, so a company can talk about, I want a more representative pipeline, I want more representative executives coming in, I want all of these things. This, this is why people are using the word systemic, because there's not just, you know, kind of one construct that you can take and isolate and say, if we fix this, then we fix the problem. You have to address the entire ecosystem. You know, you take a garden of roses um, 
and you want to grow tomatoes, you're going to have to do something to recultivate that garden so that it is welcoming, it is embracing, it is nurturing of that new kind of plant, that new kind of uh, presence. I mean, so this is a holistic approach that companies have to take. Um, you know, to say, is it, is it racism? Is it, is it sexism? Is it, is it, it any of those things? Um, of course it is, you know, to a reasonable extent, because if that has been the primary system, um, if there has been a, if there has been a primary presence, um, and this has not been something that has not existed over many, many years, um, you know, these systems existed, you know, these, they, pre, they predate technology. So technology was born into a system of a predominant, predominant forces, predominant presence. Um, you know, this is what, this is what the country is built on. This is the conversation we're all having, you know, so absolutely every, everyone is finally becoming aware that we are built on certain types of systems that um, disadvantaged and uh, ravaged some to the benefit of others. And if you built a society upon that premise, then of course the society and everything within it is going to reflect that. And of course, the conversation that you're talking about is particularly relevant in the long, hot summer, the tragic summer of 2020, the summer of Black Lives Matter. Silicon Valley has been relatively outspoken, I think, in its commitment to Black Lives Matter. Venture capitalists are creating new funds, focusing on minority communities. Every big uh, tech company is committing money to diversity. How seriously do you take that, Denise? Is it window dressing? Is it cosmetic? Or do you think Silicon Valley companies, especially the larger ones with huge resources, are they really now trying to change themselves? Well, so first of all, and, and, and thank you for asking this question. It's a really important question. Um, for me, this is not the summer of Black Lives Matter. For me, this has existed the entirety of, of my life. Um, I do believe that humanity, as we know it, was moved to a point of horror at what's happened with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and the list of names is far too long. And that is only the list of names within the last you know, 24 to 36 months. That is only that list of names. There is a litany of names that predates those. So this is not a new conversation. However, in the advent of this being very publicly uh, captured, we haven't had iPhones, you know, in all those prior times and, and seasons, but in the, in the advent of this being very publicly captured, the world is, and humanity is rightfully horrified by this. And so I don't negate that this is a sincere um, and horrific human visceral response to what we're seeing. The, the telling is going to be in the actions that are taken from this point forward. Um, if those actions are knee-jerk, if they are performative, um, if they are, as my father used to say, same plus same equals same, 
Um, uh, you know, if companies aren't, if leaders aren't willing to be uncomfortable um, and have really difficult, challenging, soul-searching, gut-wrenching conversations, if they aren't willing to um, have an appetite for um, distress, if they aren't willing to take a step back and take the antithetical action, and that is reflect and not act and fix, act and fix, um, then there is a possibility that there could be some, some substantive change. But if people behave the same way and companies and organizations and leaders behave the same way as they have, um, in the past, then I don't foresee that there will be any, any, any significant shifting of behaviors or modification of the systems that are enabling what, what we're seeing. Let's say there is a shift, Denise. Let's say some of these Silicon Valley companies do indeed reform themselves, and we see more and more uh, senior executives, designers, uh, technologists, um, marketing people from minority backgrounds, a much better balance of gender as well. How, how would you think the products of Silicon Valley change? How much more relevant would they become to ordinary Americans, ordinary Americans in an increasingly diverse America? Sure. Well, on one hand, so let's, let's bookmark that for a second. I think what you said is important that let's say Silicon Valley or technology or the leadership, um, you know, embarks upon some reforms. Technology is important and it's a, it's a magnificent force in our society, but it's not the only force. And I think that where the real change happens is not just the influx of representation. That's incredibly important. But there's also uh, immense potential in technology making these shifts and these reforms as a model to the rest of the social constructs. And for them also to use their resources to invest in some of the other constructs, such as education. Education is, you know, an incredible force uh, for change for the future. And as we're seeing from the pandemic, education is being completely disrupted right now. So technology has an opportunity to come in and be as, for example, Apple is doing with some of its uh, programs. And I believe Google and, and um, I think those are the only two that I'm aware of right now are doing with some of their coding programs, some of their investment strategies. Um, this is not just a solo act that technology can take on in and of itself. But it can be a powerful influencer and investor and force and agent for change over way over and above just its products. So then down to answer your question specifically, you know, there's a, there's a world of good that can be um, in, envisioned by having, you know, dif different people in the room. I remember having a conversation with a colleague of mine years ago when uh, he called me in to his office, uh, you know, for one thing, and he started talking to um, his HomePod. And uh, he looked at me and he said, I have a four-year-old son. And has it ever bothered you that, you know, when we talk to our devices, when we talk to Alexa, when we talk to Siri, when we talk to any anything, that 
we kind of, it's, it's constructed so that we have to kind of issue commands or almost kind of bark at them or that the default voice is a female voice, mm. you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was, we had this long conversation on it. And when you have people having those kinds of conversations, you're not just going to change the product. You're going to change the culture that surrounds it. You're going to shift the mindset for the four-year-olds coming up that won't then grow up with that same uh, uh, absolutism around what does an what does an assistant look like, sound like? Um, how do you have to speak to people in order for them to understand you? You know what what is a balance of tone of civil conversation? You know those are all things that I believe are constructs of a you know of a, of a social order that's dominated by you know men or you know a certain you know a certain type or group of people. Uh, Denise, we've had a number of people on the show suggesting that there's a generational shift going on in Silicon Valley. You and I have a relatively similar generation. Uh, I know you're no longer at Apple, but you still live in Cupertino, and, and I'm sure you still have a, a keen sense of what's happening at these big tech companies. Do you think there's a generational shift? Do you think that the younger people now coming into even these bigger companies are thinking differently from from... The, the, the more senior, older executives? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, um, I'm not sure if it was your book, Andrew, or someone's that I've been reading recently that, you know, because we're in such a time of revolution and movement. And, you know, last week we just saw, you know, the sunset of one of the greatest civil rights icons uh, in history with Congressman, uh, the Honorable Congressman John Lewis. Um, who spoke in his latter years about how um, encouraged he was about the young people and the movement and, and, and the actions that they were taking. And he said, you know, he, he believed that the movement was in good hands. And I believe it was in your book or another one that I have close by that said every, it's the youth of every generation that, you know, brings, through, brings the revolution and brings change in and are the uh, leaders and agents of change. So absolutely, I believe that, whether that's technology, uh, whether that's social norms, whether it's how we consume digitization, any of those any of those areas, young people are going to be the ones because they think differently, they're exposed differently. Um, they come into this world with, um, you know, it's just a passage of time, you know, they come into this world um, with their very different sensibilities, how they engage with one another, the relationships, um, it's absolutely going to change. It's absolutely going to happen with them. I sense a degree of optimism, Denise. Uh, in a previous conversation I had with Carol Anderson, the Emory University uh, African-American uh, historian, very distinguished woman, brilliant woman, actually. Uh, at the end of this kind of conversation, she said, something hopeful. I said, so Carol, you're, you're an optimist. You're a real American. And she laughed and she said, you know, if you're an African-American and you've seen the history of uh, the African-American community from slavery onwards, you have to be an optimist. You think that's true? Oh, of course. Uh, how else would we have survived? Um, optimism to me is um, kind of the cousin of resilience. It's, a, it's an ingredient of resilience. 
And there's no way that you can encompass um, a state and a mindset of resilience to have endured, you know, 400 plus years of, of, of what, you know, black people have endured and still um, been vibrant members and contributors of, of society and still hold the kind of hope for society that you hear in the voice of a Barack Obama or a John Lewis, um, you know, young people um, today um, are full of optimism. They're full of righteous indignation, but you can also hear in the edges of that, you can hear that the reason that they're indignant is because they want their future to look different. They want their future to look better. And that in and of itself is their version of optimism. And I hold that. I hold that flame with them. Uh, your life is, of course, deeply optimistic. You've moved on from Apple now. You run, amongst other things, the San Francisco Jazz Festival. You've done some recordings of your own. Uh, but like the rest of us, you're stuck at home during the pandemic. You're uh, in Cupertino, not too far from, uh, from the, the old Apple headquarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Denise, I know you're thinking of writing a book of your own and perhaps a uh, an autobiography of your experiences in Silicon Valley. Um, but um, what are you reading right now to keep you sane? What, what would you suggest people look at to maintain a sense of perspective and perhaps even hopefulness in these dark times? Well, I think everyone has to um, take a step back and take a deep breath and figure out what gives them hope. I think it's different for everyone. For some people, it's their children. For some people, it's nature. Um, you have to get in touch with that. So any book or podcast or anything that is instructive around how to get a little quieter and get connected with what gives you optimism and strength is one thing. For me, um, I, I love history, and history for me gives me hope for the future. But I read uh, a few years ago, I read Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. And it was life-changing in terms of really explaining kind of post-civil, from, through Civil War and post-Civil War, the, the Great Migration and how the Black community was formed and, and shaped and you know, infused into the fabric of the country um, kind of coast to coast. And it's just a phenomenal piece of work. And um, Ms. Wilkerson has just come out with her latest book, Cast. Um, and it is in, at, my, at my doorstep. And I can't wait to dig into it. And that is the one that I think, because she's, I think she's really now going to help us to not just understand, but help us to deconstruct some of the premises that we've all operated on around um, the stratification uh, of, of our society, why it exists, um, why it has sustained, and what we all need to do to address it and to um, rethink how we all show up and what our role is, because everyone has a role in this. And I think she's really um, spent some time thinking and will help to illuminate this. So that's my recommendation of the day for books. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season 
as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.